right, church family. We're going to dive into a challenging topic in the next four weeks. And I just would covet your prayers that um, what we talk about, you won't grow fatigued. You'll actually come away with great hope. And you'll see the promise in the gospel and what God has done, how good he is, and what he's got in store for us. Ferguson, New York City, Indianapolis, Minnesota, Charlotte, Charlottesville, those events are recent events. They cry out to us. They call out to us, those of us who would follow Jesus. They're events that underscore personal and systemic injustice and pain and evil. Real people who my Lord, our Lord, loves and died for, they have suffered and they suffer still. And though my sinful nature would lead me to minimize them, to distance myself from them, to react with anger or frustration or recrimination or self-serving justification, I cannot. I cannot while I honestly seek to be true to my Lord Jesus. Now, I know that there are a lot of things that swirl around in your head when we talk about racial reconciliation. So let's begin with a definition. In her insightful book, Roadmap to Reconciliation, Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil defines reconciliation as an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. I really like that definition, actually. And the great strength of it is, is that it includes the source of all reconciliation, which is the Lord God of heaven and earth, and the nature of the process. That is, at its inception and at its core, reconciliation is a spiritual work first. And the nature of this process has some necessary ingredients, forgiveness and repentance and justice. And the intent of this work That is, for God to be glorified through his creation. As I begin this series, I want you to hear um, two initial things. First, I'm hopeful. I'm not hopeful because of uh, the next government program. I'm not hopeful because some new idea sprung upon some person who wants to creatively address this issue. I'm not hopeful because I am naive, and though I am, I believe that there are great personal and systemic issues that come out of racial prejudice and bigotry. I'm hopeful because I believe in the power and the eternal plan of God the Reconciler. I am hopeful because of what he has accomplished on the cross I'm hopeful because of the ongoing active work of the Holy Spirit to change us, to bring holiness to us and to our action and our attitudes. I am hopeful because of heaven that one day every race and tribe and nation and language and gender and class will be around the throne of God. Praise God for that. I am hopeful 
because of the power of God and his value of every human life and his plan for the ages. And our series will be filled with great hope, brothers and sisters. And secondly, I need you to know of my confession, my confession of my limitations in addressing this issue and my confession of sin. I have not suffered the indignities and the evil of racial prejudice and bigotry that so many of my brothers and sisters have. I have participated in their humiliation and the systemic injustice by being silent or unjustly taking advantage of my cultural and racial position. I have not listened to or entered into my sister's and brother's pain or stood with them in times of need as I should have. And I have not led the church to true oneness as I should have. I have sinned. And I confess that sin before you today. And I lean into your forgiveness as I lean into the forgiveness of a grace-filled God. And more, I seek to discover what unity in Christ means in our day for us, for this dear church, for the kingdom of God. And until we discover that fully, I believe our Lord would have us carry a holy dissatisfaction until his kingdom comes and the community of the kingdom that we are part of experiences full reconciliation. And we pray for that day and we work for that day. In this wonderful passage in John 17 that I'd love for you to turn to, there is a great statement in Scripture. John 17, those of you who know Scripture and you've walked through the Gospels often, you know this is the high priestly prayer, the prayer of Jesus for his disciples. His disciples, not just that were there around him, circled around him before he would go to the cross, but it's for disciples of all time and all places. And here is what the Lord Jesus prays, starting verse 20, verse 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only. This is the Lord Jesus praying to the Father. But also for for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. It seems like an impossible prayer, doesn't it? And yet the Lord Jesus prays this out with confidence. It is his agenda for us to experience this kind of oneness. And I'm hopeful because Jesus was hopeful. And here in John 17, he prays out his agenda for all of us to experience unimaginable unity and relational healing and health. And he's praying that you and I, as broken sinners with long histories of racial division, injustice, and sin, would experience that same kind of intimate oneness, trust, and community that only he can provide. For those of us who struggle with following Jesus through the deep racial divisions of our day and the wounding all among us, I believe it's imperative to understand the source of evil 
before we make any headway. And Scripture's clear on this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. When you see the news and you see the depictions of brokenness and racial strife and suffering, the manifestations of racial division and evil, it's because the evil one is at work and it should not surprise us. We must appreciate its nature and combat it. We must acknowledge that all racial bigotry, injustice, and prejudice is evil. It's sin-filled, and it's of the evil one. Jesus, when he makes a distinction between the sides of good and evil in John 10.10 says, the thief, he's talking about Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The verse helps us see that with clarity the two forces, spiritual forces at work in our world today. Satan's agenda is to steal and to kill and destroy. And when you observe racial hatred and bigotry and prejudice, it's what's happening that God has spoken of in his word, playing out in our day. Satan's intent is to steal people's dignity, to degrade the image of God that marks them as valued and loved. His intent is to incite hatred and cause relational and physical death. He seeks to destroy relationships and human value and community and connection to God. And all that he seeks is in opposition to the agenda of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ferguson, New York City, Indianapolis, Minneapolis, Dallas, Charlotte, Charlottesville, they're only the tip of the iceberg. And all over this hurting world, there is racial division and hatred that is used by the evil one in an attempt to denigrate the glory of God. And for those of you from Eastern Europe or from Latin America or Southeast Asia or India or China or wherever your heritage might be, you can attest to the crushing prejudices between classes and ethnic groups. And you have stories like I have stories where we have seen centuries-old prejudice and hatred and divisions between nations and ethnic groups and whatever wherever you come from, and whatever your racial background may be, you have seen this evil. And many of you have been victims of it and carry around the wounds today. And even entering into this dialogue is difficult for you. As sinners, according to God's word, we've all participated. We are all sinners. But listen, brothers and sisters, we're called to higher things for the glory of God, for our King. That's why we're calling this series, It's Not You, It's Me. Because we're not looking to cast blame or motivate you by guilt or shame. We are calling all of us to take responsibility to understand the battle. And then, as Ephesians continues in chapter 6, in 6.13 and following, we're admonished to stand firm against the plans of the evil one. Now, 
Admittedly, my view as an old white guy is a little diminished. It's limited. So I've invited a friend of mine, um, Joyce. Uh, I'm looking for you. There you are. Thank you. Um, this is my friend Joyce, who's part of my small group. And um, she's got a really great story of God at work in her and God, how God has been processing this. So thank you, first of all, for coming. Let's step up here. Sorry, we're in that little zone. There's a little zone on our stage where I give feedback and drive these guys crazy. I stepped into it, and I apologize. Um, so, Joyce, uh, we're talking about a difficult topic, and it, you've experienced it firsthand. And uh, it would be so great if you could tell us a little of your story and how God's been at work, right, for you. Thanks so much. So I wrote some things down so I won't ramble. <laughs> um, but when Pastor Ron talked to me about what he was going to talk about and what the church is talking about, um, it caused me to reflect. And as I looked back over my life and the process and journey of racial reconciliation, there were three things that, that I see um, in terms of my journey. So the first was that the journey's been about having experiences with others who were accepting and loving also, the second thing was seeing God's word and what he said, specifically Ephesians 2. Um, and then also safe spaces to dialogue and to grapple with the issues that were created by some skilled people. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Boston um, in the 70s. Uh, many of you may have heard of the turbulent 70s and even early 80s in um, Boston through the desegregation process, I was involved in a busing program that bused inner city black and Latino children into upper class, predominantly white communities. And it was an experiment to, A, give a better education for the inner city kids of us, um, K through 12. I participate in the program. And then the other part of the experiment was to desegregate. And so there were some wounds that were created through that process. Mm -hmm. Um, I heard the N-word, as everyone calls it now, at age five. Um, And that's really testament to the fact that there was, not everyone was on board with this experiment. And kids Mm -hmm. listen and learn um, from their environment. So Mm -hmm. that spilled over into the the school district. Um, And we had this this white bus driver and from kindergarten, she would say to us as we drove through Boston's very segregated at that time um, and still is to some extent, and she would tell us all to duck. Um, So we had riot drills um, at age five, riot drills on the way to school. So um, because people would throw rocks um, at buses of children. And um, so so those were things going on outside of my home. Excuse me. Um, But it was very different within my home. So I grew up in a Christian home and my parents had friends of all different nationalities. So you know, we had this guy from Kentucky, and he was a, a white guy, and it was really interesting for us as children to see what he brought um, to our home. We had an Asian guy who came and took over the kitchen and cooked dinner for us. Um, so we had these different, very different experiences at home 
um, with love. Many of my uncles either dated or married um, white women, and um, so it was, I was seeing something very different at home, but the adults in our school didn't really know what to do about it. I remember when some incidents were touched off in elementary school um, mm. with tensions around racism and so forth, we'd end up in the principal's office, and he would throw lollipops in the air for us to catch. Basically, we were fighting over lollipops, and he would say, get out of my office, don't bother me with this stuff. So the adults didn't really know um, what to do. Um, And I remember in high school when I applied to colleges, and I went to a teacher who I had gotten all A's in his class, and I applied to nine schools, including Ivy League schools, and he looked at my list of schools, and I was asking him to give me a a recommendation. And he said, these are good schools. I would hope for one of my daughters to be able to get into one of these schools, basically questioning the fact of whether a black young girl from inner city Boston um, was good enough to get into any of those schools. And when God allowed me to get into eight of the nine schools, I went back to him. And so um, (laughs) some of my life has been about disproving some of the stereotypes and um, racism. Um, And it really bothered me that the segregation extended into Sundays. So not only was I the only um, black person in many of my classes in school, but we were the only black family in many of the churches where my family went. And um, by middle school, it got kind of wearisome to me. And I asked my parents to go to a predominantly black church in Boston. I figured it would be one day where I wouldn't have to Mm -hmm. have that burden of being different. Mm -hmm. Um, And by God's design, the church had a sister church that was predominantly white. And their high school group had a retreat. And I remember going into that retreat and just experiencing just the love of God and just a difference in my peers, and it was it was the love of God. And mm-hmm. one of the scriptures that really ministered to me that weekend was in Ephesians 2 about God breaking down the walls and being our peace. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was a, a big chapter in my journey um, around racial reconciliation. From there, I remember visiting with my family a church in New York City, And it was multiracial, and I remember just the worship there. Um, There was this African guy, because I I went back when I was in grad school, and there was this African guy down the front, and he'd be saying, hallelujah! (laughs) And then there'd be a Hispanic woman, and um, Asian, it was just some of everyone, and the worship was just so incredibly beautiful. And I remember saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Mm -hmm. And this has been part of my journey. So as I became an adult, the churches and part of what brought my Mm -hmm. family here to Bridges Mm -hmm. um, was just the the racial diversity um, here. Um, And I, I remember also in college going to South Africa and in the preparation for that trip, Um, learning of Bishop Desmond Tutu and the racial reconciliation work there in South Africa and and really beginning to understand the role of the church and racial reconciliation. And from there, um, I went to a church in North Carolina where there was some racial reconciliation work. And then I also had the um, privilege of being able to see racial reconciliation at work in a church in Baltimore, 
um, before coming here. Um, and then another big milestone on my journey was um, in college, there was a, a course that I took called Race Awareness in American Society. Mm. And it was a really mm. deep, deep class. And the discussions took us well into the night. I mean, it spilled over into the campus center, just talking about just the issues of race and prejudice and um, racism. And I remember understanding that, um, or that was when I began to understand that the whole racial reconciliation um, part of how it comes about is in terms of people being able to understand, and that was those were some of the safe spaces. Because um, I've heard people shut down the conversation because they don't have an issue with race personally, or they've experienced discrimination, even being members of the majority culture. Um, but when the understanding of the definition of racism is understood and um, concrete examples of the effects of the systemic um, mm-hmm. discrimination where the dominant culture benefits while others don't, um, that's where the, the conversations really began, when people can understand or see how racism plays out. For example, you know, I, I've gone to upper crust resorts as a, a resort person and been mm-hmm. asked to provide service to people. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, just having that happen over and over or going into an upscale store and being followed, those those are things that are, are part and parcel of the systemic um, effects in our society that they're things that other people may not have to experience. Mm-hmm. And they're not overt things like mm-hmm. cross-burning or... Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's not always... You know, those those really overt um, types of things. Um, and so I'm, I'm really, really hopeful and prayerful about mm-hmm. this this time and this, this space that the, the elders and mm-hmm. um, the leaders are creating here mm-hmm. um, and praying that God will do a work here. Great. Thanks, Joyce, so much. Appreciate it very, very much. In the early 90s, I, uh, I was a youth pastor. I had a group of kids, and uh, we were living in a pretty diverse place. And um, I contacted, I got connected with uh, a guy who was leading a ministry. Um, he had been mentored by a man named John Perkins. If you are familiar a little bit with the civil rights movement in the U.S., John Perkins was one of the, the great leaders there, um, a godly evangelical guy who created a ministry in Mendenhall, Mississippi. Uh, they had a church, they had a law center, they had a medical center and a school and a farm, and they were developing skill sets. Um, they all were in one area of this small town in Mississippi. Um, it was railroad tracks ran right through it, and all the blocks were on one side, and and all the whites were on one side. And uh, we, I, so I took a group of our kids there, and actually a number of times. And we got to do ministry alongside these really wonderful believers. And it was shocking for our kids because they had grown up in a very different, diverse culture, and they couldn't imagine that in the 90s this kind of thing was going on so overtly. And... Um, 
I was really blessed, graced by the guy who was leading the ministry, Dolphus Weary, who with John had suffered all kinds of persecution, um, physical persecution, being imprisoned, all kinds of things. Where John, where Dolphus took me aside, and we just had this really important conversation in my life um, to help underscore the systemic effects that I had been in as part of the majority culture and could not see. And my role as a person who is in that culture to be someone who is proactive and seeking reconciliation and the challenges of it. Dolphus shared with me that even then he couldn't go into one of the white churches in town without being arrested. That's not the kingdom of God. See, this is a gospel issue. It's about the kingdom and what God has for us as brothers and sisters who together comprise the kingdom of God. And um, it was such a great gift that Dolphus gave me and helped me start to appreciate. And Dolphus's his life was filled with grace. It wasn't filled with resentment or frustration, um, although there were certain frustrations there. And he helped me understand that the, the agenda of Jesus is so much different than the agenda of the evil one. See, Jesus' agenda is to sacrificially give and to bring life and to reconcile. Let me repeat that because it's very different. It's the diametric opposite of the evil ones. His agenda, the Jesus agenda, is to sacrificially give, right? He gave himself even to the point of dying for us and to bring life to us where Satan would steal life and would denigrate people. He gives us our worth. And to reconcile first to God, us horizontally to God, and then vertically to one another, all these broken relationships, all these things that have been divided. And I believe that as it pertains to racial reconciliation, sacrifice must be initiated by me. It's all of our issue. But it's me as part of the majority culture. I need to humble myself before sisters and brothers. I need to learn how to more effectively put their interests before my own, like Ephesians 5.21 tells me, to submit myself out of reverence for the Lord to others. I need to humbly serve and to actively repair divisions and injustice. We must be a community that gives and breathes life into people and to initiate the pursuit of reconciliation. And while significant action is required of us, and while our world is broken and people live in the middle of this mire, this struggle of our brokenness and sin that seems irreparable, don't lose heart. In fact, the message is, Take heart in this, that Jesus, our Lord, is on the march, and he will not be overcome by evil. And he is the great reconciler, and his eternal plan that he has called us to participate in will not be thwarted. He is, in fact, according to God's word, already the victor, and we get to participate in that victory. And our great challenge is for those of us who would follow Jesus is to imitate Christ and to participate fully in his agenda. So let's flesh out that agenda. And for the rest of our time this morning, I want to lay the biblical and theological groundwork for us to go forward in this really wonderful series we're going to be a part of. So as you 
join in with me. Would you take out that piece of paper that's provided for you inside of your bulletin that's a list of confessions? And I want you to think about these confessions this week to take time to dive into these really precious and great scriptures and your time in the Word this week to think it through yourself and to process these things and to own them yourself. I'm just going to list them and walk through them briefly for us, rehearse them for us, and so uh, you'll know what I'm talking about when we dive in. You dive in personally in your time in the Word this week. Number one, we confess all people are created in the image of God and are all image bearers, which means all people have God-given dignity and worth. Our worth and identity is not found in race or status or achievements. We are all precious and valued and esteemed in the sight of God. Amen to that? Yeah, it's probably good for us after each point to just say an amen, right? Just to agree with Scripture. Two, we confess that we are all sinners and divided by personal and corporate sin. If you walked in this morning and you think, this is not really my issue. I've got it squared away. Then I'd encourage you to read Romans chapter 3, verses 9, starting in verse 9, and go all the way through the chapter where you will find the conviction that Paul came to that all of us, every one of us, is a sinner without excuse before a holy God. Our division began when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, Genesis chapter 3. And that rebellion had its consequences in sin against one another. That's the story in Genesis 4. And that weaves itself out as you see sin woven throughout the texture of Scripture, leading to Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel and divisions there, where everyone's seeking to make a name for themselves, which is the work of the evil one. The result of this sin was divisions and the foundation of racism. And racism and prejudice is all of our issue because we're all sinners. Yet, like other types of sin, we do not all participate in, nor are we all affected by this sin in equal measure. Joyce has been affected in different ways than I have, in different ways than you have. But we all wrestle with the sin. And we all own it, and we all know, point three, that we confess that in this process of forgiveness and repentance and justice, our great hope is in God's work of salvation, that he's great at rescuing us. He's great at bringing life to us. And we're rescued by faith through Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross, and no other thing, no other work. We cannot hope for forgiveness and reconciliation without Jesus. And no other system will solve it except for the salvation that we find in the Lord. But with Jesus, there is great hope for our present and our future. Our future of forgiveness and life change and reconciliation. There's great hope for us, men and women. And four, we, we confess our daily dependence on the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting and recreating us. That's the work of the Spirit. We all have blind spots. We all have sin. We all have weaknesses. And praise God, he's not finished with me yet. And with you yet, he is still on the march working with us. And he's still working with us as a church. We might step back and say, Ron, look at how 
you know, how diverse we are, how many languages we are, and all the people groups. Isn't this great? We've got it wired as a church. And I'm here to tell you, no, we don't. Not yet. But God is at work. Praise God for that. In the last 20 years in our church, we've seen this great transformation. It's wonderful. It's a work of God, and we praise him for it. But he's not done yet with us. Jesus is our great hope for our present and our future. And we daily depend on the ongoing work of the Spirit. We take encouragement in the knowledge that by grace through faith, the Lord Jesus Christ is making us into one new humanity. Which that passage that Joyce mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2 will be our theme next week. And five, we confess that in Christ we stand together before God, equal and united. When Paul writes this in Scripture in the New Testament multiple times, that we're neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, that's not our identity, but Christ is all and in all. He's saying there's no preferential treatment before the throne of God. There's no entitlement or superiority. There's no division in God's kingdom allowed by a holy God who's intent on reconciling relationships. And we are all called to pursue that kind of unity. We are ambassadors of reconciliation, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we are called to pursue that with every effort. Six, we confess that God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially. That's actually part of the EFCA statement of faith, and it's central to the gospel. That we love him supremely and others sacrificially. And the final message in our series, it'll be about how do we take proactive, practical steps in doing that when it comes to reconciliation. The mark of the new creation in Christ, the mark of all Christians is love. Love for God and love for the person you're around right now and love for the person who is not like you. It's loving them sacrificially. And this love compels us into action and requires the challenging work of relationship building on both sides of the divide. And we must pursue it honestly with mutual grace giving, depending on the Lord's work for the sake of the kingdom and for his, for his glory. And seven, we confess that God alone reconciles. That solutions that we hear of in culture today on social media or on the news and other forms, or from our government, they will not bring true reconciliation. They will fall short and be dissatisfying and insufficient. And often they add to the division and to the mistrust. But God forcefully and permanently addresses the issue around racial reconciliation. And he does it through four primary means. He does it through the finished work of the cross of Christ who died for us to make us one. He does it by the active work of the Holy Spirit to convict us when we blew it and to heal us, to unite us, and to direct us forward together with joy. The Spirit does that on an active basis for us. And surprisingly enough, according to God's word, he's created a structure, the local organism or church like bridges in order for us to discover what reconciliation means, how to live it out with one another so that we might have right relationship with each other, 
regardless of where we come from, regardless of our background, our ethnicity, that we might demonstrate the power of the Lord Jesus Christ as a church united in oneness. And finally, fourth, we have this hope of the reality of heaven, that the end game of God is for people from every tribe and language and nation and every gender, every people that God has created to be one and experience perpetual oneness, eternal oneness in the kingdom of God, around the throne of God for his glory. And finally, eight, we confess that racial reconciliation among believers in the church of Jesus Christ is one of the great manifestations of the gospel today. It is our argument. When we go out to the people that we work with and go to school with and live with here in this city, that Jesus Christ is both compelling and he's miraculous, that he works through our divisions and he makes us one. And when we experience oneness, the glory of God and his gospel is revealed like no other thing. And in light of these confessions, we say, amen. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we humbly come before you Acknowledge our own sin and brokenness, our struggle. There are brothers and sisters here who have been hurt and wounded and still carry along that wounding. There are divisions here in this room that we seek your spirit to bring healing to. There is great hope in what you're doing I love this church. I love what you're doing. I love our diversity, but I, we seek even greater manifestations of your power. Lord, that you would bring reconciliation in every level to all relationships here. And by doing that, people would see the power of the cross. People would see the Father and Son are bringing their oneness to us and in doing so, demonstrating the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel that we proclaim. Lord, be at work in us. We invite you to do that. Bring healing and wholeness and health to us. We humble ourselves before you, and we look forward to anticipation of what you have in store, for you are the great reconciler. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.